When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Traphagen, your co-host for today's episode, along with John Cag, who is just in from world travels. John, how's the jet lag going? Oh, I'm getting back to it. All right, good. Um, we are delighted today to welcome jazz organist Tony Monaco to the show. Um, Tony is a master of the Hammond B3 and has collaborated with many other great jazz musicians, including uh, his fellow jazz organist Joey DeFrancesco, uh, drummer Steve Smith, as well as guitarists such as Pat Martino and George Benson, and, and many, many more. Um, Downbeat Magazine named Tony in the top five jazz organists internationally, and, and I concur. I think they are right about that. Uh, he's one of my favorite jazz musicians. Um, his albums have been commercially successful and critically acclaimed, uh, with several climbing to the upper levels of Jazz Week's annual Top 100 listings. Joni, it, it, Tony, it is just great to have you on How to Be Wrong. Hey, it's an honor to be here, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about how we overcome errors. This is great. Thank you. Great. Well, I'd like to start uh, by asking you if you could talk a little bit about your background and particularly how you got into playing jazz organ and and maybe a little bit about some of the influences of other jazz organists or other musicians on your career and, and your music. Okay, that's really cool. Well, I was actually introduced to music before my first lesson. My father was a local drummer that played wedding gigs. And so I remember as a little, uh, a little boy, I'd go out on some of the gigs with him, you know, because he played the drums. I was always fascinated by that whole thing. I loved the sound of real music being played by real people in the moment, you know. And then when I was eight years old, this guy came knocking on our door, and he was selling accordion lessons. And um, so my mom and dad invited him into the house, and I remember him setting an accordion on me. It was a real small one. And he said, put your fingers here and go, like, you know, push this button and push this button and Next thing I know, I was playing or uh, the accordion, and I started taking lessons. Uh, you know, uh, the interesting thing about music is one of those things where if you have the talent, then you grow as a musician. If you don't, you kind of get out, you know. And uh, so I had the talent, obviously, because I started winning contests playing the accordion. Like, they would invite us to, like, different local, regional, then eventually a national contest, and I'd win these things. Cause I didn't need to look at the music. I'd hear the music and I could play it. So I had this kind of gift from God. I, if, if you want to look at it that way, I do. And, um, so the next thing I know this band that my father belonged to had a four piece band with a saxophone, an accordion player, a bass player, my dad playing the drums. They decided they wanted to make some more money. So they fired the bass player. And the accordion player bought an organ, a Farfisa organ, so he could play left-hand bass and organ, and they could go out as a trio and make more money, you know. So I'd already been playing the accordion about four years at the time, and I remember being in the basement of this accordion player who had 
transferred over to an organ, I remember that electric sound, you know, wow, it was so different. And, you know, I had a little record player in my bedroom that I played 45s of the Beatles, you know. And uh, at the end of their rehearsal, uh, Mike was his name. He gave me a two-album set of Jimmy Smith's greatest hits. And I remember the exact words he told me. He said, Anthony, because everybody called me Anthony. He said, Anthony, I'm not really into this music, but give it a listen and see what you think, you know. And I remember going up to that little record player and I had to take the little uh, 45 adapter off and put the 33 on there. He told me I had to change the speed, you know, to 33. And the whole side of this one album was one song. It was called The Sermon. It was a Jimmy Smith blues. It goes on for 22 minutes and then they just faded it out before the tape ran out, you know. By the end of that, 22 minutes I was baptized and I knew exactly that I'd be here with you guys today and I say that every time I say this story because I'm still in it you know that was the moment that I decided that I wanted to be a jazz organist that was it there was no other questions to be answered about that so here I am you know 50 some years later uh, still as enthusiastic about playing this instrument called the Hammond B3 and uh, also teaching it and sharing it. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. So great. It's really interesting how little moments like that can have an influence. Uh, when, when I was a kid growing up in Boston, uh, there was a, I think his name was Ray Smith. He was, he ran a um, radio show on WGBH uh, of uh, jazz. And uh, I sent him a letter or something like that because I liked what I was listening to. And he sent me a cassette tape filled with all sorts of different stuff to listen to. And I just, I destroyed that cassette tape over the years listening to it. And, and that was how, you know, I mean, I was a really weird kid. All the other kids are listening to, you know, Kansas or whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm listening to Thelonious Monk. And, um, you know, it just really triggered something in my head. And um, so it's kind of, you know, similar how just one little thing like that can, you know, set off an interest or in your case, a whole career. Um, yeah. It's amazing. Really, it's cool. You know, what's interesting is I came from an immigrant family, so I was first generation. So there wasn't a lot of knowledge about, you know, information. Uh, Cause my father was a hard worker and my mom was a homemaker. And so, you know, the first influences I had was just off that double album set, you know, and then I found out that they sold records of, that kind of music at the local shopping malls record store, you know, cause we didn't have internet or anything like that. And so I basically started learning Jimmy Smith off those vinyl records, you know? And, uh, then I finally stumbled across more Jimmy Smith. And then I started coming across other organ players, names like Jimmy McGriff, Richard Groove Holmes, all the greats at the time that were the most popular ones, obviously selling at the local store. Uh, uh, Jack McDuff, so to speak. So I didn't really actually hear real jazz organists play the organ until I finally started to really get into it. And my dad took me to a jam session at one of these little clubs that was up on upstairs behind a pawn shop, you know. And if it's okay, I'll just be as vivid as possible since this is a podcast you had to kind of go through this bar downstairs it was an african-american club full of smoke 
you had to go through the bar and it was loaded with hookers, you know. And then you went up the stairs and when you got to the stop of the top of the stairs, it was the owner of the club and he had a gun on the table. You had to pay cash to get in. And back at the back was this old B2 organ. It wasn't even a B3. There was a cat there named Alvin Valentine. It was a Sunday night jam session. That's the first time I really heard this instrument being played by the authentic people, the African-Americans who invented this music. And I got to actually become even more immersed in it. That's when I started to discover some of the people because there would be other uh, jazz artists that would come in uh, like uh, uh, Bobby Pierce, who had recorded on uh, uh, Blue Note. Uh, and I heard there was another organ player in town that was a great guy, and his name was Hank Marr. And even one night at that jam session, it was this little old man. He was a short guy. I remember, he was kind of heavy set. I didn't know that. I wish I knew who he was when he came. I didn't know. It was Don Patterson, and he had come in to play a song. And I just remember, you know, this this old man playing this beautiful ballad on the organ, you know. And it was like, wow. There are real people that play this right here, you know. So back in the day, you know, that music was being played in the Chitlin circuit, so to speak. And I got it that way. You know, I got it from the original sources. And uh, I thought, you know, just to be honest, I thought anybody who had black skin and played the organ were the coolest people in the world, you know. I remember staring for hours at Jimmy Smith's records and looking at those long fingers on the keyboard, just mesmerized by the whole thing. So I started writing letters to Jimmy Smith. I had found a Mojo Records. It was a self-produced record and it had an address on the back. And I started sending cassette tapes and pictures, kind of like love notes, you know. Because, you know, these guys were gods to us. You know, we didn't have the Internet to look them up and stuff. They were, they were untouchable, you know, so they were like gods. And I'd send these letters and cassette tapes of me playing the accordion of his stuff. I think that it must've been his wife. I didn't realize these letters were going to a supper club in Los Angeles because he had divorced his first wife and now was living with the second wife, Lola. And they had a club called the Jimmy Smith supper club in, in LA. So I guess these letters and cassette tapes were going there. Well, I think Lola must have told him, you know, you should call this boy, you know. <laughs> so finally I get this call and it happened to be, you know, I don't believe in coincidences, but coincidentally it was on my birthday, my 16th birthday. And my dad had just bought me my first B3, this one that I'm sitting on. And um, there was this raspy voice on the other side of the phone. My dad woke me up. It was probably about 3 a.m., probably midnight in L.A., right? He just got done with the set, you know. There was this raspy voice on the other on the other side. I knew who it was because I had listened to every grunt. He had a breathy voice too, and um, you know, he said to me two things. He gave me my first real organ lesson. He said that I played too many notes, and he said I needed to learn how to play the right chords. And he sounded angry, like maybe his wife told him to call me. You know. And that was my first experience with, with meeting God because <laughs> he scared the, the living daylights out of me. But he also gave me a lesson that I still take today and teach all my students. 
yeah. about not playing too many notes and learn the harmony, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool, you know? Sounds like the experience of meeting God is just the experience of encountering your own messed up fallibility. (laughs) (laughs) So I I just, I want to ask, it seems that improvisation, any sort of improvisation really turns on the ability to work through mistakes and to make mistakes into something a little bit better than just simple mistakes, or at least to change variation into something that grows and um, resonates. And I was wondering if you might be able to say a little bit about how that happens. I know that it's a really hard question and I've asked a bunch of artists this and sometimes they simply say like, it just, just happens. Um, But I, I was wondering if you might be able to say a little bit about what that's like, because it seems like that's the key to uh, what um, this play, the playwright Samuel Beckett meant when he said fail better. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you um, could say anything about that. Uh, for our- yeah, actually, I, I really enjoy these uh, uh, this this whole topic that we're going to be discussing today because, you know, jazz is about telling the story. You know, and I, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't always tell the story this, the same way. Sometimes I make mistakes. I make errors when I tell the story. And, you know, the longer you tell or the story and repeat it, you eventually start cleaning up all the errors in it and you kind of cleaned it up so that the listener can follow well you know man when i was listening to those jimmy smith records you'd hear a lot of mistakes because they didn't have the ability to edit things on a computer so they just left them in there and usually what i found that guys like jimmy smith would do is if they made an error they'd repeat it a couple of times like as as if to say i meant to say that you know and so I've learned that, you know, that's part of the process of being a better soloist, of being a better storyteller, is to learn how to, you know, overcome those errors and actually incorporate the good parts of them. Because maybe your ears just not developed and it wasn't an error at all. It might have just been where I put it or how I put it. And then, you know, from those errors, I've learned, you know, so. It happens all the time and it still happens. I think if you're not taking chances, you're not going to grow. And when you're taking chances, I think it introduces part of that ability to have to learn from your so-called mistakes, you know. Are they really errors? I don't really know because they end up being turned around, you know. How do you know that you're growing as a performer or as if you're in a piece how do you identify that this is growth and what sort of um, characteristics come along with that, that feeling or rather that experience? Mm, Good question. There's two parts. One is, you know, when you look out at the audience, are they listening or are they talking? So the better storyteller I come to be, the more they start listening. Second thing is I've learned from, you know, having to sit in recording studios with some pretty high powered musicians, the power of having to go back into the engineering room and listen, what, what you just laid down and you learn real quick, what not to say when you're not getting the reactions from your peers, like, Oh man, that was good. That was real nice. When they're starting to, they get deathly quiet. You know, you're no, you're not on track. You know, that's how I know. That's great. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Silence is a, is a powerful 
critique at times, uh, I think, particularly, you know, I, I think it's true, you know, both John and I write a lot and, and silence about your writing can be a very powerful critique. And certainly as a musician, you know, the, the sort of, oh, that's nice or the nothing at all is, is not really what you want to hear. Um, although, you know, also at times hearing really direct criticism, you know, like you got with, you know, Jimmy Smith is that's actually the most helpful thing of all. And, and, um, so, you know, I, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've been a fan of yours for a, a long time. Um, your album, uh, Groove Blue that you did with Steve Smith of, of Journey fame is, is actually, I think that is the number one thing I play when, you know, iTunes tells me how often you play something that one. Wow. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, I love the album and also, you know, cause I play the drums. I love listening to Steve play and, and, you know, he's just amazing. So, um, but I was wondering if you could, you know, talk a little bit about working with other musicians who were kind of, you know, going there and how error factors into your experiences. Um, and also, how do you work through differences from an artistic perspective? You know, how do you how do you manage that? Sometimes it's not exactly error, but just really strong differences about where things should go. Mm. You know, I think, first of all, music is kind of like a drug. And when you play together with other great musicians, high powered like that, uh, there's those nights, those magical nights when the stars align and everything hits. And the next thing you know, the night is over and you reel, you reel for days. You just have this sense of, you know, but they don't always go like that. I remember one night we were playing at Ronnie Scott and we all in uh, England and, you know, we played there a, a few nights, but there was one set. And I don't know what it was about that one set. I think there was a lot of expectations on everyone. That ended up not being the best set, you know, not it didn't end up even coming close. You know, we made it through. We made it happen because we're musicians, you know, we're we're showmen as well as musicians. So we have to make the show go on, so to speak. But I know at the end of the gig, that one set, you know, we both, we all felt, even the guitar player, like, you know, we didn't, we didn't say much about the set. You know, we didn't talk about it where usually we do, you know, and the idea of working with other musicians is the idea of, you know, being a collective part of a team rather than going in there with just your ego. However, you got to have some pride and ego in order to be in that ring in the first place, you know, but there's a balance between that being a healthy thing and working collectively with the musician. So when you work with these kind of powered people, you have to respect them. And whether you disagree or agree, you try it. That's part of the part of the respect factor is let's give it a try. Let's see what happens, because a lot of times, even when I'm pessimistic about an idea, they end up being incorporated into the show so much so that it's expected that you do it because we actually, you know, we, we practice in delivering the performance of what makes the, you know, people clap sort of like the seal gets the fish, you know, so you kind of know the things that you got to do in order to to you know, to do what you're being hired to do. And that's make people happy, entertain people. That's what we do, you know. 
Yeah, that's. I think that's a really important part of of performing. Uh, sometimes people also lose sight of the fact that you know, yes, the art is important, but the entertainment is really important too. You're, you're there because there's a bunch of people sitting there who want to listen to what you're doing, and if you're you know get so sort of deeply into the quote unquote art that it's inaccessible, well, kind of what's the point? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so um, the errors are what fine tunes the performance actually. Mm, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it kind of comes back to this issue of taking chances. And, you know, even if someone has an idea that you're not really sold on, try it out, see where it goes, take some chances with it. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting observation. With, um, with many of the guests that we have on this show, um, we get pretty, uh, personal because we ask uh, some fairly direct questions. So I'm going to pose one to you now, which is, and we do this for everyone. We would like to know what sort of serious mistakes or errors you've made either professionally, personally, intellectually. And, um, one of the bigger ones, hopefully, and, uh, how it shaped you as a person and how you've gotten through it. And, um, and you can take that any way you want and you can also opt out if you don't want to. Well, no, we're being real here and we're real people. So there's nothing to hide. I mean, my career is still going and, uh, have I made some big mistakes? You know, I have, you know, I think we all have, uh, the idea of uh, being successful is overcoming those, right? That's the definition of real success is continuing. Uh, one of the, and I don't necessarily call this necessarily a mistake, but I'm, I'll get personal with you. Um, because I don't have anything to hide and I'm not promoting anything. Uh, but I have a problem with alcohol and I used to drink a lot. And sometimes I would drink to the point where my performance would be hindered because of my drinking. So had I kept going in that, I probably wouldn't be here with you guys today. So I had to overcome my drinking problem and get sober. And as a result, I think my playing today is the best it's ever been because I'm clear headed. I don't have anything to fog up my thoughts. And uh, I have, you know, a direction, a good orderly direction, G-O-D. And uh, that's one mistake. Another mistake is I've gone in a lot of times with my own intentions of what I thought was supposed to happen. And I wasn't listening to the other musicians. I wasn't giving them their due. As a matter of fact, I was a little bit judgmental, right? A little bit cocky, a little bit like I'm better than you kind of stuff. And, you know, those are the worst performances I have on record. You know, those are the ones where I played too loud, played too much didn't play as part of the band. And uh, those two issues are mutually exclusive. Sometimes they were combined, but they were, you add the two together. Oh my God. You know, you hear about arrogant performers. I've burned some bridges that way. I am. I want to thank you for that really honest uh, remark. I'll um, add something and then ask another question. So, um, I've also had my own um, firsthand and secondhand experiences with um, addiction and 
um, compulsive behaviors and um, watch my father uh, die from drinking too much. And um, he, and it strikes me that um, sometimes when you're in error and you're wrong um, and you've crafted a life around that error, it's very difficult to see that you need any type of help. In fact, um, help or rectifying the situation seems to be the last thing that you actually want to do. And uh, this is like the problem of uh, the demon, the demonic in, I guess it's Mark or Matthew, where Jesus comes up to the demonic who's cutting himself with stones and says, can I help you? And the demonic says, just go away. I just would rather have my little comfortable corner of hell. Thank you very much. And I'm wondering how you break out of that because oftentimes when we look around our culture and we see pockets of life that seem to be not growing or stagnant or deadening or destructive, it seems like those pockets are ruled by the demonic impulse. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you get out of that. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how you got out of it also. Okay. Uh, that's a great question. And actually, right on when you describe uh, the uh, demonic part, which I, I think uh, is, is influenced by our egos. It comes in there. It's looking for us to, uh, you know, basically take our own will instead of the will of the higher power, so to speak. I was lucky that my father recognized that I had this problem. And my first bout of uh, sobriety, so to speak, was in 1982, a long time ago. And uh, so thank God I was introduced quickly to uh, through, uh, through some treatment uh, to this concept of the 12 steps and uh, higher power, so to speak. And for 15 years, I maintained absolute sobriety from at least uh chemicals that was uh and then it came back you know and i i took the will back and the demonic part so to speak because i started using again and uh boy did that cause destruction in a real hurry uh fortunately though the the stuff that i had learned the first time around quickly helped me to know i was on the wrong path and so i found the right path again but and I want to go on with this answer because this 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 is not the end of it. It's only just the beginning. I found another eight years of sobriety after that. As a matter of fact, I held my father in my arms when he was dying of lung cancer the moment he died. And I was sober when that happened. But then right after he died is when I met Joey D. Francesco. I had given up playing music. Because I didn't know why God had given me this talent. Because every time I tried to do something with it, it seemed like it would go nowhere. And the moment my father died, about six months after he died, I get this call from a friend of mine. And he says, we're opening up a new jazz club and we're bringing in this jazz organist named Joey D. Francesco." I had not really known much about him. I heard there was this young guy coming up that was a really great organ player. But I had already gone through some spiritual intervention where I thought maybe God was calling me to become a deacon of the church. 
So I kind of quit playing music when my father was dying because I had to be there to help the family put together the trusts and all that stuff that has to be done. He died way too young. And um, so I had quit playing music, you know, and I had surrendered it to God because I didn't know why God had given me this talent. And all of a sudden, Joey comes into town and I offer to take him out to dinner because I'm running a well-to-do construction business because it was our family's business, you know. And when I took Joe, when I went to go pick up Joey, there was this, um, uh, he was given a clinic. And I had no intentions of even really telling Joey that I played the organ other than just I used to play, right? Because I had quit. Well, when I went to go pick him up, someone in the audience said, hey, Joey, you should hear Tony play the organ. He says, you didn't tell me you played the organ. Well, I said, you know, I, I didn't think it was that important. So they invited me up on the stage. Next thing you know, I'm playing. And next thing you know, I'm in Arizona being produced by Joey DeFrancesco. And my first album, Burning Grooves, was released. I was sober. So I want to stay with the topic here. I just wanted to introduce this thing. So all of a sudden, God had finally you know, allowed my talent to do what it is that I wanted to do. I always dreamed of playing the organ in front of national, international audiences. I thought I had some talent, you know. Well, you know, it didn't take long for my ego to come back. As people started telling me I'm great, I started believing it. And that's where the demonic part really came in, because then I got drunk again. And I had to go through that whole thing again because this time my ego was bigger. And, you know, it's harder to get sober when you got a big ego, you know. So it almost destroyed my career that just had started a year or so before, you know. So it doesn't take long for the, the demonic part of our, uh, the other side, so to speak, to take over. And that's true story for me. I, I, I know that other side. I have to be very careful to stay right-sized, because if I get my ego involved, I'm heading towards that bar, you know, so. It's really interesting, and as you describe this, you know, we've talked about, you know, a few minutes ago, you were saying how, um, well, you know, you got to have some ego to go in there and perform with these other people, and, you know, I think that's right, and, of course, you know, you can't not know you're really good at what you do, so that's there. How do you how do you balance that? How do you how does the idea of humility play a role in your music and 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 in you know how do you balance the two things, the humility and the ego? Um, and I'm I'm curious about this in terms of you know maybe your you know life, but your performance and and also just in the context of ensemble playing. I found when mm-hmm. I play. Playing with other people is humbling um, in, in many different ways. And, and I don't mean that in the, you know, I feel low humbling. I mean, it makes you realize how different it is to be tied to other people in an ensemble performance and how that changes your sense of self. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I'm interested in, you know, how, do, how does this balance of ego and humility play in, in terms of being a musician and, and you know, maybe more generally? Yeah, well, the journey of our life is to become right-sized and become most useful to our society, to our fellows, right? And so in ensemble playing, that's the opportunity to practice that. 
because individually we if we if we're all lined up to be our best but we're all there to work together to be the best that we can be together that's the proper alignment of it you know like i know steve smith's not the only greatest uh musician i've played with i've played with a few uh and i've been blessed to it uh the thing is is if they start you know blowing my horn <laughs> That's a dangerous place for me. I like to stay humble and practicing and being my best in the situation. And uh, that that seems to be the best place to collectively grow as a band, you know, giving everybody the due that's due, you know, like you're great, you're great, you're great, we're great, let's go do it because that's what we do. Rather than it being an ego thing, I think it's more a thing of, right sizing your best it's a little different right it's a little different to look at it that way for me that you know i've been given this talent by god you know i tell all my students that you know i kind of have this theory now because i've taught so many students and i love teaching talk about getting humbled god you know god does some amazing things to every one of us and my theory is you know like when a bride and groom get married they give you a little a sack of now it's bird seeds used to be rice. They're all the same size. And when the bride grew comes out, we throw them on the, to celebrate the uh, showering of whatever. Right. Well, imagine that when we're created, maybe that's what God does. He's got this sack. Each one of them's the same exact size for each soul that's created. And like, you know, like sprinkling, you know, salt on top of the, you know, he throws the sack of these things called talents, right? And they land on us and each one of us has a unique set, right? Like when you look at somebody like Jacob Collier, you wonder that most of the seeds fell in one department because he's so freaking talented. I can't even, I can't even figure him out, you know, but yet maybe we don't know the other side of what he, you know, you, you know, the whole, the whole story. So I think that the proper use of humility and ego is when we try to figure out what our set of talents are, we may be able to check other people out to be able to grow in those talents, right? We don't try to be that person. We try to take from them what embellishes our own talents. But the proper balance is when we try to become the best in being who we are how we were created and knowing that we're being the best of what we were supposed to be the best at. That's the way I look at it. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. I was thinking about this as you were talking. Uh, I know you've spent a lot of time in Japan um, and have performed at the cotton club in Tokyo and places like that. Um, I spent a lot of time in Japan. I, I, that's what I do for a living. I, I study Japanese culture. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm curious um, have you found, you know, ensemble playing, say with Americans, as opposed to playing with Japanese musicians, is it different? Is it basically the same? And the reason I ask that in part, because we're talking about this issue of humility. And of course, humility is a very important part of Japanese culture and is different from the way Americans tend to think about those things. And I'm just curious, have you found differences in, you know, performing with Japanese versus say American musicians in that sense? Oh, that's interesting. We had a trio. I did two record releases in uh, Japan with them. 
And the manager who became a, I asked him to be my Japanese manager. He had a concept and he put me together with a drummer that used to play with Herbie Hancock, but he now lives in Japan. He's married to a Japanese uh, woman. His name is Gene Jackson. He was the drummer for many years with Herbie. And he also put us together with a guitar player who happened to be Japanese, Yosuke Onima. And we made a band, or he named the band As One. Three people from three different cultures being one. And, you know, I think it doesn't matter who you play with because music is not the language of English. It's the language of music. As long as everybody's listened and been influenced by the same kind of music. You know, so like, you know, some mistakes that promoters make <laughs> is to think that by putting me together with so-and-so and so-and-so that it's going to work. And then we come together and they don't know any stuff that I like to play. Well, we got a problem here, you know, because if you don't know what I like to play, chances are pretty good. I don't know what you like to play, you know, but, you know, no matter where I go, if people are influenced by this thing called jazz, especially if they go to the real original sources of jazz, the Blue Note collection, the Verve collection, where you had everybody learning from each other, this new type of music called experimental jazz, whatever, then I have no problem communicating with anyone as long as they know the tune. And we go one, two, one, two, three, four, boom. That's the end of the conversation in terms of English. The rest of it, it's all done by coming together. And, you know, there's a certain form in jazz that we all follow, right? We play the head first, play the melody. Maybe you might want to have an entrance to it, right? Some tunes have a standard entrance that everybody knows. Some don't. So I might say, hey, I'm going to pedal tone, okay? And I start, they got it. If, they got, if they're great musicians. And we hit, boom. So we play the head. That's the first part of any tune. Remember, we got to take it out. So probably the melody, the head, we call it, will be played at the end too. What happens in the middle? Okay, well, it's whoever wants to solo first or whoever goes first, but we're still in the same bucket. You know, the chord changes that that tune is. So there's no real mystery to it. You play your solo, you point to me, I play my solo, then okay, you know, maybe it's a drum solo time. And, you know, those are called trades. I play eight, he plays eight. I play eight, he plays eight. Or I play eight, drummer plays eight. Then guitar player plays eight. Then a drummer plays eight. There's these kind of things. A lot of times we'll start with eight, then we'll go to four. You know, it's just pretty common. And then all of a sudden, okay, it's time to go out, right? So we play the melody out and we take it out. So as long as everybody understands that, we have no problem. If they don't understand it, we got a problem. That's, um, I actually, in, in one of my books, I wrote about that, that, that the idea that culture and lead sheets are more or less the same thing. The lead sheet gives you the form. As long as we all know the form, we can improvise and communicate together and we can make it work. The problem is if we've got two different forms, then it gets really hard to have a conversation. And it, it really struck me when I was thinking about jazz at one point, how similar the lead sheet is to what we do in culture more broadly is that we've got that structure and that we know how to improvise and, and how to riff and how to you know do the things that we do in that context mm -hmm. and we can communicate as a result of that yeah that that's great thank you that's a really interesting observation i um 
I wanted to ask a question because as you're talking about um, the way that form uh, guides process, but then allows you to deviate in useful ways and meaningful ways and then come back to form, it strikes me that this sort of freedom within constraint is um, the way that oftentimes we're supposed to live our lives. You know, like it's a it's a type of life lesson about um, the necessity of form and the necessity of some sort of um, design and knowledge base, and then being able to move off and create you know meaningful variations off of that. And I'm wondering. Since since that struck me so poignantly, I'm wondering, can you say a little bit about why you think jazz is important for a culture like ours, and also why, um, what it might teach us about uh, sensitivity and patience and um, what what it can teach you know students. You know, I have students who are twenty, twenty one, and they might not be. Uh, you know, listening to experimental jazz. Can you make a, can you say something to them about why maybe they should? Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because I'm noticing that as the uh, electronic revolution has uh, brought in so much information now, uh, we are going to start, and I have already started seeing disconnects you know, where your playlist is not anywhere near my playlist. And it could be separated by generation and it can be separated by geographical location. Uh, and it could be uh, separated by, you know, wh- where you're coming from, so to speak. So I do worry sometimes that, you know, uh, jazz is going to have you know, and it already is experiencing a lot of changes in the sense that, you know, a lot of the younger kids that uh, I try to play gigs with, first thing they don't understand is, hey, you know, back in the old days, we played four-hour gigs. You know, we played all night. And, you know, sometimes uh, they think that maybe we're just going to play a 45-minute set. You know, that doesn't happen unless I'm playing at the Cotton Club, you know? The Cotton Club says you got to play 45 minutes and you get 10 minute encore because we need to we need to get rid of everybody and fill the room again because we're selling two houses, you know. So I think that some of the thing that's happened is people have lost the wideness of being able to be an all around performer and do this thing for more than just one sprint, but multiple sprints in a night, you know. But that being said, there's always going to be, and I think there will always be, a generation of people in the in the current generation that get it, that do get hooked to the the the, the jazz music. Now it's starting to change. Like so, like a lot of the tunes that some of the younger kids know, I don't know. I I don't have time to. You know, it's overwhelming. You know, this is a big challenge. As long as I got the chord changes, I'm okay. You know. But thank God, you know, I'm at an age where I get to play with the people I, you know, that understand my thing. And so I know this is that was a very deep question. So I'm trying to answer this, but also privy it with, you know, the scenario. Uh, I think as long as we are all on the same page of the kind of music or the kind of jazz or the stuff that we like playing, we're going to be okay. We're going to be able to do that. 
We're going to be able to find a way to make music together and talk the same language within the airs, right? But once I don't know what you're talking about, I can't play with you anymore. That's what is the big thing that I'm starting to see. There is a separation in some generation gaps, but, you know, there's always been that, right? Like, we always say that our, our parents didn't like our music and, you know, we didn't understand their music and that kind of thing, right? Mm. So. Yeah. I hope I answered the question. That's a hard one. No, it's great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, John, do you have, do you have other thoughts? Well, I, I wanted to, I guess I, I wanted to, um, you know, because Tony's very involved in music education, I, I, I would be interested in hearing a little bit of your thoughts about the role of error in learning to play an instrument. I, I mean, you know, it's like, I, I, I have uh, both of my kids grew up learning to play instruments. My parents are both, you know, professional musicians and the struggle of learning to play an instrument is, you know, it's just watching that process. You know, my, my daughter is a, an opera singer and, you know, listening to her practice and having her voice crack and, you know, it's just like, damn it, this is why, you know, and I just, you know, could you talk a little bit about how that, you know, how we go through that and, 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 the process of education and learning an instrument and how error plays a role in that. Okay. That's a, a good question. I was hoping that we would get to that. Uh, I was lucky that when I was 16 years old and my father bought me this organ, that not only was I learning from, um, you know, the records, so to speak, I had a, a teacher that taught me, you know, and he was really good. And that's why I decided to teach, by the way. Because he was really, really good. And he had it all organized of what the process was and learning and all the keys. You have to remember that to learn the Hammond B3 instrument the way we play it, the way I like to play it. It's not, you know, like there's other genres of how people play it. Like gospel organ players play it one way. Blues players play it another way. Jazz organ players play it the whole way. I like to call it the whole way. Because we're playing bass. We're playing that with both our left hand and our foot. We're playing comp, which is how we back and complement one other solo. We're also learning how to solo, tell a story, right? And we're also learning how to, like, play a synthesizer because it's got many different sounds and things. So just imagine the cut to make it in playing this instrument. That's why there's so few of us out there is... This is kind of like one of the most complicated instruments anyone can ever learn how to play. And so the students that I, that end up making the grade or end up staying are exceptional. They are because they learn how to play it well. And uh, I don't mention names because I, I, I would, I would let them mention the name, but I've taught a lot of people over the years. And the whole reason why I teach is not because I can teach them, I come out from the approach that together we learn together. I'll share with what I got. Well, we talked about the talents, but they, they become who they are, right? They don't, at, at the beginning, they mimic me just like I mimic Jimmy Smith. A lot of times they come to me that looking at me like I'm, you know, up there, whatever that is. But eventually by the time we really get into it, I make them feel that they've got to their own thing going on and I'm here to help them develop that. That seems to be my best approach. That way, we're all going along the same journey. I'm not talking at them. I'm talking with them. 
And um, the process is I tell them that when you play, record yourself. When you're feeling good about how you're playing today, you've been practicing for a while, we're working on a new tune, you got some new ideas, record yourself. And then as much time as you spent practicing, I want you to spend that same time listening to yourself. And here's what happens. It's an amazing process. And I learned this from sitting next to Joey DeFrancesco, Byron Landham, you know, in the studio, just listening to what we just finished recording, you know. And I grew 10 years that day, <laughs> you know, because I knew the next time I was going to play, I wasn't going to play that again. So in the, in the process of listening, you start to pick up the things that, hey, I like when I do that. I like the way that sounds when I do that. Man, I, I don't like that. You can teach yourself once you start listening to yourself. Because, you, you know, what happens is the amazing process is you start to not play the stuff that you know doesn't sound good. So, you know, I just kind of point out what they need to do in order to help guide them to that point where they can pick up themselves. And then, of course, I'm going to try to break them from bad habits. That's the thing you always hear about. If you learn the instrument wrong from the beginning, it's hard to unlearn that, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Listening to yourself is very powerful. I, I you know, <laughs> with the trio that I play in, we did a CD a while back. And every time I listen to it, I hear all the things I hate about my playing. Um, it's good, but it's still kind of painful too. Cause it's just like, Oh, I did that. Oh, that stinks. You know? And, um, but it's, it is the best way to learn. You know, you, you just, you hear those errors and, and you, you, you grow from the fact that you realize that what I thought sounded good while I was playing it actually doesn't really sound very good. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's painful, but it's, it's valuable, very valuable. Um, well, Tony, I, this has been a fabulous conversation. We're kind of coming to the end. Is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't, you know, covered, uh, and, 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 or, or play on your organ that we haven't heard? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, shoot, I can always play a tune. <laughs> oh, I'd love to hear a tune. I, I think everybody would love to hear that. This is my teaching room. Does, that, does the program have any filters that uh, uh, makes the uh, sound bad? Because like with Zoom, we have to turn off filters in order to, to hear each other. I but, don't think uh, it does. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we'll end with a tune I wrote. It's called I'll Remember Jimmy. And this friend of mine, he had contacted me to tell me the news that Jimmy Smith had passed. And so I, I, I went to the studio and I turned on my Hammond B3, this one. Uh, and I remembered that Jimmy Smith had done a, 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 a recording with Art Blakey. It's one of my favorite recordings. And he recorded Confirmation, which is... Um, so in jazz, a lot of times what we do is we do what's called contrafacting. Contrafacting is when you take the chord changes from one song, but you put a new melody on it. So like you hear, like sometimes musicians say, let's play rhythm changes. And there's like a whole bunch of melodies that's been written to the chord changes of I got rhythm, I got music. So those are called rhythm changes. So confirmation changes is what this is based off of. And basically, you know, Jimmy Smith, just like all of us had different parts of his career where his, his personality changed on the instrument, just like our personalities change as we become more mature. Right. 
There's part of our personality that stays, but there's also an, a morphing, a refinement, hopefully, right? And if we don't get stuck going the other way, a refinement. So this was the early Jimmy when he was still like, you know, like a bull, you know, <laughs> he was charging, you know. So I wrote this song called I'll Remember Jimmy. And it was a song that actually became one of my, you know, better known recorded tunes. Other people have recorded it, and I recorded it a few times on records. So maybe we'll just play this. And actually, there's a lick in the melody that was a mistake that Jimmy Smith had made that ended up being the best part of the song. So I actually put it in the melody. Isn't that funny that we're here today talking about that? So uh, I'll kind of say when I when that is, okay, when I'm playing it. Can you hear this okay? fantastic you could the two of us are just smiling the whole way tony <laughs> well, you know, music so is a gift that i was given and i try to play yeah. it with respect but i also give it all i got you know yeah That's well great. and it it's a gift you give to a lot of other people too and i i want to thank you for being on the, the show with us this has just been a fantastic conversation thank you so much thank you both of you for asking some really good questions i I, I appreciate that. God bless you both, man. Thank, Thank you, Tony. Thanks. Great to meet you.